Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of the Most Traveled Podcast. As always, I'm Joe Altaffer, back with my dad, Bill Altaffer. And today we were going to talk about a topic that some people might find very interesting in the most dangerous trips. So dad, what were your most dangerous trips you've been on? Well, my most dangerous trips are usually to the parking lot at LAX before I fly off to a third world country. Because being a former South Central high school teacher for half a decade, uh, I know the Crips and Bloods are there, and that's more, far more dangerous than the streets of Rio de Janeiro. So in terms of your actual trips, let's dive into it. What, what were some places, or maybe, maybe you want to break it down a certain way? Yeah, I thought I'd break it down uh, by oceans and sea uh, adventures, and then airplane adventures, obviously, and then things that happen on land, so to speak. So three different categories of Great. So let's danger. get started with sea. Well, my very first trip was rather exciting. It was uh, 1950, and it was a trip to Alaska where the ship sank in Glacier Bay. Uh, the ship was called the Princess Kathleen, and I think I was like seven years old, six or seven years old, and we had to get in lifeboats and uh, watch the ship uh, go b- below the water till we were transferred to its sister ship. And so that was with the Canadian Pacific Line, as I remember. And uh, that was pretty exciting, but I continued to travel. So uh, one of the times I thought was really... Uh, hair-raising, was uh, 1962 when I I went on a ship uh, for two months to Australia. And when I got there, I had my surfboard that uh, Dewey Weber had made for me. It was a a uh, 10-2 regular California foam surfboard. And I had to get it from the harbor over to Manly Beach, which required uh, disembarking from the ship with my board and going to a, uh, a ferry boat that went across Sydney Harbor. So my friend George Grogan, he had his surfboard, and we, we both got on this uh, ferry boat to uh, go across the bay. And uh, it was about, probably like a 20-minute ride to Manly uh, Docks. And I look out of the side of the ferry boat, and all I see is a wall of water. I mean, I don't know, probably I'm exaggerating, maybe it was 60 feet high. Whatever it was, all of a sudden it picked up this couple hundred foot long ferry boat and turned it on the side where I was standing on the bulkhead, the side of the wall of the ship. And then it righted itself, but the ship, the ferry boat had uh, lost its power because it seems the water from the ocean had filled the smokestacks. So now the boat is drifting towards the heads of, I think they're called the heads in Sydney Harbor. It's a big wall cliff, and we're getting closer and closer, moving sideways from the motion of the ocean. And uh, then finally the ship got, uh, the boat got started again, and we made it across to the manly uh, side of the harbor, the north side. So that, that was exciting that that got me uh my blood uh boiling then um other times there was a time when i was in hawaii and uh 
I was out surfing in Ala Moana. And the waves were really, really good. And I remember famous surfers were in the water like Donald Takayama and Ricky Gregg. And uh, waves were getting, you know, hitting 8, 10 feet. And there was probably 40 or 50 of us in the water when all of a sudden this Coast Guard helicopter appeared above us and the side door opened and there was a big sign in the side of the uh, helicopter. It said, Shark. Well, the surf was so good that day, everybody kind of looked around at each other and thought, well, the shark, huh? It's not going to eat us all. So absolutely nobody went in. We just uh, continued surfing. And uh, that uh, that was uh, kind of... Why don't you talk about another seafaring story you have? Well, back in 1996, I took a an Estonian icebreaker class ship from uh, Ushuaia in uh, Argentina on the island of Terra del Fuego down to Antarctica. <clears throat> and then we went 60 days right up the spine of the Atlantic Ocean, hitting very, very uh, exotic places like Tristan da Cunha, Ascension, Gulf Island. But as we left Antarctica, we were on the east uh, island group of the Falklands. And uh, we'd go to sh- go ashore all the time in Zodiac boats. And we're on shore on this desolate uh, beach. It, there were lots of seals and, and, and local uh, life. And uh, I'm looking out at the ocean, and I can see the waves starting to get bigger and bigger. I think my surfing background uh, told me time to get back to the ship so my wife who was just from china and it was the first time she'd ever been on a ship like we were on we i said we better we better go now so we got in the zodiac boat we got went back to the livonia that was the name of the ship uh out of estonia and then we watched from the side of the ship as the waves got bigger and bigger and people were getting ferried back to the ship until the last zodiac to come our expedition leader, who's a really great guy, really a super nautical genius, really, Jeff Green from Canada, he was piloting this uh, Zodiac boat, and the waves were 10, 12 feet tall, and he had the last of the passengers, like two or three. It was a very small ship, and uh, he was just bouncing through the surf, and if... If that boat had been, those Zodiacs had been turned over, which could have happened easily to a novice, uh, everybody would have died because the water was so cold and the ability to move and, and retrieve them, even though they had life jackets, it would have been very difficult. Oh, wow. So that was a really exciting time. It must have been. When it comes to uh, the airlines, uh, there were many times in the, 80s when I'd be in Siberia and I'd look out the window of my uh, Russian plane and Tupolev or whatever make it was and I'd see the uh, tires had patches on them like uh, almost like duct tape was over the tire and things have changed now in Russia the planes are much better than they used to be but that, that, that era of flying in uh, in Siberia was was quite uh, hair-raising. But uh, looking back on a specific flight, I was going from Angola out into the ocean to the country of Sao Tome and Principe, 
and we're at Luanda, the capital of Angola, and we start down the runway, and it's a big explosion, and the left engine catches on fire. So I was with my buddy who was running the tour, uh, Herb Goebbels. Mm-hmm. He, he lives in uh, Aachen, famous from World War II, Germany. And he looked over at me, and he says, Bill, Bill, you know, we travel so much, it's only a matter of time. Well, we went back to the uh, to the terminal, and we got another plane. So uh, that, that we su- survived that. Another time, we were one of the first group of people to go to the island of Socotra, which is off of uh, Somalia. It belongs to Yemen, though, and it's a very exotic island and extremely hard to get to. It's the spot where the monsoons start in the west as they head the winds head east into the Asia and then cause all the rains half of the year. So half of the year you can't fly to Socotra and it doesn't have a harbor and it's really difficult to get to. So we're in Sana, Yemen and we get on uh, Yemenese airlines and uh, we start down the runway and bam, the uh, left engine catches on fire. Mm-hmm. And so we went over to the side of the tarmac there and we sat there. Nobody says a word. And then finally the door opened to the plane and people got off. I was with a small group of about six people. None of us got up. We just sat there. So several passengers got off. And then about 15 minutes later, the uh, pilot comes on the intercom and says, well, this is not a restaurant. You can't just get up and get off and walk off the plane. Now, we're going to take off in five minutes, and we, we don't know what's wrong with the plane, but we're, we're departing. And I thought, you're going to take off and you don't know what's wrong with the plane? <laughs> and so uh, there's only this one plane that goes to, uh, to uh, Socotra, and uh, finally they aborted the flight, and we went the next day. But uh, uh, none of us none of us got up to get off the plane because we were, were dead set on getting to see Socotra. So that was mm-hmm. my uh, one of my, those are some of my air stories. But oh, cool. uh, but so, we can go to land now if you want to hear. Yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about your land events? Okay, some of my land events is, was I worked for a company called Hempel Harris. And in Los Angeles, it was the most luxurious uh, group tour travel agency in the world. We always flew first class and we stayed in five-star hotels and it was all quite uh, opulent. But I went into the office one time. It only happened once, only happened once working for these people. They said, uh, you got a trip going to the South Pacific and you're going to be staying on this private island in Fiji. And uh, there's something there that we don't want you to discuss with the passengers, the people on your tour, before you get there. And and that, that is the fact that uh, the island is uh, covered in coral snakes. Oh, wow. And I thought... What do you mean? What, 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 my pastors, what about me? I hate, I hate snakes. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. And so 
I, I don't tell anybody because what would happen if it split the group? Because most a lot of people don't like snakes like me. And then, then people are going to want to stay back in Nandy and they're not going to want to go on to the island. It's going to make a big mess. So I don't say anything. It's the only time I was semi-dishonest <laughs> a, a tour group. The only time. Yes, it, oh, it wow. really is. And so <laughs> I, I get in my room and we stayed in these things called burrows. They were pr- independent rooms like they were like uh, shacks and... Uh-huh. Uh, and I get in my room, and when I'm on the first get to the island, and uh, I could feel something wasn't quite right. And I looked up into the rafters, and there's this eight foot coral snake, black, white, black, white, crawling along through the rafters. And I go, Jesus, this is terrible. So I lock my suitcase, case, thinking I might get in my suitcase, and I decided I'm going to go to the swimming pool. And so I go to the swimming pool and boom, 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 the coral snake plops into the pool. So I go, this is terrible. So I try the ocean, same deal. There were snakes in the ocean. I, this, this, is, this is terrible. We're going to be there two nights, three days. Oh, so I thought, okay, I think my plan here <clears throat> is to go to the bar. And they had these tall bar stools and I'll just sit on one of these stools at the bar for three days until this experience is over with. But oh no, at night, the tile floor of the bar attracted the snakes and they would come in and slither around oh. in the bar. And they'd be curled up like fire hoses all over the island. The, the, the natives love them. There's no way you can get rid of them. They eat the rats that are on the island. So, so there's some use to them. There is some use to them. And that, but that, our company, Hemp Bill Harris, that was the last time, one season, they, and they never went back to these. Uh, the Australians love this place. They're tougher than the Americans. They, they they can deal with all kinds of insects and bugs and stuff. They're they're much tougher than us, at least in, in that case. Oh, wow. <clears throat> then there was another time when I was leading a tour in South Africa and Rhodesia, and it hadn't changed names yet. And I was at the Vic Falls Hotel. And uh, I'd always take my tennis rack along with me. And if I got to a place where uh, there was a tennis court, there might be a tennis club at a hotel. And so I'd, I'd hire the local pro to hit with and stuff. So we're out there at the Victoria Falls Hotel right on the Zambezi River. And uh, my instructor across the way there, he says, sit down, sit down. And so against the fence. So I sit down and this swarm of killer bees came right up into the court right around the net and we didn't move and uh and then they took off so that was that was pretty exciting um it must have been you know that was also the area where i i went to that many times one time instead of the victoria falls hotel i stayed at the gary players hotel i forget what the name of it was but uh it was a very uh high-end hotel every room had its own small little uh, swimming pool and I remember sitting in the lobby and I'd see a family come in checking their luggage with an AK-47 amongst the luggages and the night that very same night we got um, mortared by the uh, oh, Zambians across the, uh, the the river and wiped out our uh, our kitchen so we had to go over to the Vic Falls Hotel to, to eat uh-huh. and Another time, uh, back in uh, 62, 
I went down to Peru to go surfing. I was on a boat and I ended up in Callao, Lima. And I'd seen in Surfer Magazine that there was this club Waikiki. These are old black and white printed magazines. And so I got a cab, put the surfboard on the top, and I went to the uh, club Waikiki. It was winter, our summer, and there was nobody there at the club except some of the employee employees that worked there. And uh, I went out surfing in front of the clubhouse there. And uh, the, the guys that lived there or worked there called a guy named Joaquin Miracuaseta, better known as Shiggy. And uh, he came down and he surfed with me. And uh, that first day when he meets me, when I come in from the water, uh-huh. we're downstairs and all of a sudden he says, jump up on the table. And I go, what? And he says, jump up on the table. I jump up on the table and this rabid dog had come in off the street or somehow, and he had a big club, and he pounded on that dog and killed it. And the, and the, the dog was just rabid with all his foam coming out of his mouth. And then poor Shiggy, he came to the United States, I guess a year later, on his way to uh, Hawaii. He was going over there. He was a goofy foot. He stand the way he stood on the surfboard so, so he wanted to ride pipeline he wanted to ride pipeline and there were some guys like uh, felipe palmar uh who are famous peruvian surfers over there and he wasn't there a day or two and he wiped out on a left and uh the story was that the repair done on the nose had some fiberglass that wasn't sanded oh, anyway wow. it cut his juggler vein and he Yikes. bled to death he bled to death before he could get to shore Wow. And uh, Joaquin Miracuseta, known as Shiggy. So th- that happened. Wow. So yeah. to circle back on that, what about maybe your time in, in Djibouti? That's always a great story. Oh, forgot about the Djibouti story. Yeah, I used to, in the early 60s, I uh, used to, uh, when I was going to Valley Junior College, I went to this karate school. Uh, in fact, one of the guys I surfed with was a black belt from there, Ned Foreman. So I was over taking lessons for three or four years. And people that have done that, they, they, they know the basic stance and you're doing a two-knuckle strike and you're doing your key eye and everything. And that really paid off years later when I was in Djibouti. Mm-hmm. Djibouti, the time I was there, had no American consulate. It belonged to France, sort of. You know, it's up there by Ethiopia, next to Eritrea. And uh, I was staying at the Sheraton Hotel there. And a friend of mine who was in his 90s traveled with me, Bernie Schneider, out of New York. He says, well, can you get me some postcards? So I went down uh, into town with Robert Ippolito, who's uh, also a Catholic priest and a member of the Traveler's Century Club. And two of us went down. It was noon, and we're in the middle of the town square, and Bob goes over to this bookstore to buy something. So I'm standing in the middle of the street, and these two guys come up, and they had postcards, so I was negotiating buying them. But all of a sudden, one of them reached up into my backpack. Now, at that time, we didn't have uh, e-tickets. There were paper tickets. If you lose the paper ticket, you have to come up with the money and get a new ticket if there's any flights available, they were in my backpack. Uh, I had my money in my backpack. I had my passport, naturally, and there's no embassy there in Eritrea, uh, Djibouti, rather. And so uh, 
I punched this guy so hard, knocked into the other guy, it scared the holy crap out of me. It was a reaction because there's no way they're going to get all that stuff. I mean, I don't blame them. They were just trying to, you know, pickpocket me. But the fear of being stuck in a country without a passport, without money, without an air ticket <laughs> was greater than getting beat up. So in uh, all those you. years of karate was a natural reaction of just a two-knuckle strike in the sternum and just, yeah. So you, got, yeah. you had to do what you had to do. I had to do what I had to do, and all the years of, of, of training was well, well worth it. I bet, I bet. Well, that's such a story that I really enjoy hearing as well. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, uh, our next uh, show is going to be on exotic and unusual ski areas around the world. Some of them are located on the equator, so that's just a hint of what's to come. Awesome. So as always, thanks for listening, and if you have any other questions, feel free to reach out and let us know anything you might want to hear.